middle of the country, but not middle of the road opinions. It's the podcast dedicated to sports in the air capital of the world. I'm going to Wichita. Wichita, Kansas, and beyond with Tommy Castor and Blake Cripps. This is Keeper of the Games. Some may say that we are wildly unqualified. And some may say that we are only mildly entertaining. I say we are exactly where we are supposed to be talking baseball as another Kansas City Royals season comes to an end. And oh yes, there was plenty of football to digest and discuss from over the weekend. We welcome you back into the Keeper of the Games podcast. This is another milestone episode, episode number 80 of the Cogpod. Of course, available on all your favorite social media platforms, cogsports.com, cogpod.podomatic.com. Episodes dropping every Tuesday for right now. We'll reevaluate in basketball season. Probably we'll push it back again to accommodate the early week basketball schedule. If you want to interact, best place to do that, of course, is on Twitter at Cogpod, Facebook.com slash Keeper of the Games, where you can watch the videos, also our videos on YouTube. And the audio is pretty much anywhere, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, and so much more. I am your host, Blake Cripps, and joined once again by Tommy Caster. Tommy, what did you get into over the weekend in terms of sports? You know, uh, watched pretty much a full day of uh, NFL on uh, on Sunday, which was nice. Um, you know, caught a little college football on Saturday, um, but uh, that was pretty much about it. My, my main sports watching, uh, I think, was pretty much all the NFL on Sunday, capped off by, of course, Tom Brady's return to New England uh, on Sunday night. I did see some of that. How locked in were you on that game? You know, I wasn't at all because it was the least likable football game uh, I think I've ever watched before. Like I didn't, I didn't want to cheer for either team. You know, like I didn't really want to cheer for Tom Brady, and I really didn't want to cheer for the Patriots. Like I, I liked it better when Tom Brady was with the Patriots because I could just encapsulate all my hate onto just one franchise sure. instead of spreading it around. You know, to multiple ones. Now you have to. So yeah. I mean, there's still plenty of hate in my heart for the Ray. I don't have any room for the Patriots, the Cowboys, or this these other stereotypical teams that people always hate. I always, in my mind, like I don't, I just don't even care. The only thing that I care about is I hate the Broncos mm. and the Raiders. Like sure. what everybody else in the league, who cares? You I don't hate, hate the Chargers. Uh, no, not to the to the same extent as the Raiders or the Broncos. Not even close. And the Seahawks back where they were in the West. They may as well not even been a, a football <laughs> team. They may as well have been playing like team handball or something. I always forget that they were in the AFC West for a number of years. Yeah, but, yeah. You know. Anyway, uh, coming up on the show today, we will get to the Chiefs getting back on track, the Sooners clipping the Wildcats, and the Jayhawks blasted by the Cyclones. But we will begin today with our official 2021 Royals season in review. Tommy, this was a topsy turvy ride this year. Turned really negative after a brilliant start to the year when the Royals were the best team in baseball and everybody was bragging throughout the majority of April. But an 11-game losing streak in May dragged Royals fans back to reality extremely quickly, and it was a slide that Kansas City really never recovered from, especially in the first half of the year. Royals have been on pace for yet another 100-loss season after that, after dreadful efforts in 2018 and 2019, but Kansas City pulled themselves up a bit after the All-Star break, finishing three games over 500 in the second half of the season. And of course, it was thanks in large part to the mostly unobserved and unappreciated effort, nationally at least, of Salvador Perez, who led the major leagues in home runs with 48, 
tying a franchise record, set an all-time record for most home runs by a primary catcher, also led Major League Baseball with 121 RBIs. There's a lot of positive to talk about even in this bad year, but, and, and even when I'm talking about the positive and I'm getting into the negative in terms of the pitching staff, because the pitching staff was a big source of the issues that Kansas City ended up facing in the 2021 season. There were bright spots there as well. The Royals got out of the cellar at the end of the year, finishing 74 and 88 on the season. The White Sox are your Central Division champions at 93 and 69. In their last season as the Tribe, the Cleveland Indians will wrap up their tenure in the major leagues at 80 and 82. The Tigers third at 77 and 85. The Twins, boy, what a disappointing year they had. One game's one game back of the Royals in the standings. As you think back on all the little segments, all the stories that we had this year, and there were so many. Obviously, depending on what kind, what time of year you're thinking about depends on what your will affect your mood and how you're thinking about the Royals. Obviously, April was magical. We thought that they were going to win 125 games or the best team ever, or at least some of you did out there in Royals land. I did not. But the losing streak happened. The losing continued. It piled on. It mounted. We got to the All-Star break. But after the All-Star break, Tommy, mostly pretty solid baseball from Kansas City as you went into August and September. What's the part of the year that you think will be the most predictive going forward? And what's the part of the year that you think that excites you the most or maybe does not get you excited the most about next year? Well, I think that what we saw from the All-Star break on is probably the most predictive of the Royals. They were a good baseball team for the second half or just shy of the second half uh, of the season. They weren't a great team by any means. They were a good team. They were a solid team, Um, you know, with with still the same old holes that we've talked about um, pretty much all season long. I think that's probably the most predictive uh, on what we'll see from Kansas City moving forward. They definitely have some areas that they need improvement on. I mean, I think that's pretty glaring. The thing about Kansas City, I think if you were to take the entire roller coaster season and sum it all up into one, the Royals in 2021 were a mediocre baseball team. When you combine everything put together, and the reason that I, I say that is because they weren't good enough to sustain long stretches of winning. You know, they did that the first month of the year and then the car went off the cliff, but they're not bad enough to where that terrible losing streak in May and June and so on and so forth continued on to the latter part of the season. They were able to pull themselves out of it. So when a team is roller coaster like that, it tells me that they're not a great baseball team, but they're not a awful baseball team either they're mediocre they're just shy of middle of the road uh in my opinion when you put it all together um you know i think that if you if you throw out you know kind of like when when uh when teachers grade on a curve right if you throw out the top score and you throw out the bottom score i think the royals the last part of the season was the most indicative of who they really are perez is the first royal to lead the majors in home runs he shared the lead with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Hal McRae, by the way, trivia question, the only other Royal to lead the majors in RBIs. He did it after driving at 133 in 1982. Perez, the sixth player in the last 30 years to lead the majors in dingers and RBIs in the same season. First to do it since Giancarlo Mike Stanton back in 2017. He's the number two home run hitter in Royals history now behind only George Brett. What he has done, Tommy, It's such a crime and so unfair to Salvi 
because I mean I know everybody who's wear out wearing this stuff, this gear, they get it. And I mean Salvador Perez, I don't know if I've had a real favorite baseball player for the Royals since I rejoined the fandom back when I got on with the Royals affiliate up in Nebraska and I said, you know what? If we're going to be carrying the damn games, I might as well watch the team and suffer along with them. And, you know, turns out they were pretty bad for those years in the late 2000 odds, but it turned around. And, you know, I, I kind of gravitated toward Alex Gordon because he was the local kid, the, the Husker and everybody in, in, you know, where I was at in Fairbury. Obviously, they, you, they love Nebraska. They love Alex Gordon. A lot of Royals fans in Nebraska, thanks to the Omaha Royals or the Storm Chasers, whatever the hell they're calling themselves now. But... Salvador Perez is my favorite baseball player. He he's a he's getting close to eclipsing being my favorite all-time baseball player, which is Ken Griffey Jr. I mean, he's he is so unbelievably likable. You want him to do well. He never cheats you. He never does anything that's stupid. He never gets you into off-the-field situations. I don't know what his nightlife is like. You know, I don't know what kind of a family man he is, but I know the I know what he is on the baseball diamond, and I know that he is somebody that you can have your absolute utmost trust in that he is going to do what it is necessary to put himself in the best place and the best position to help the Royals win. And it's so sad that nationally, because the Royals are, like you said, they're not terrible. They didn't lose 100 games for the third year in a row, but they still just didn't matter this year. And it's really sad that for a lot of people, Salvador Perez, who I think had probably the best season in the majors this year, outside of maybe Shohei Otani, is not going to get the recognition nationally that he deserves, I think is really unfortunate. Because what he did this year, breaking the all-time home run record for a catcher, playing over 120 games at catcher this year, he missed, I, I think I read he missed one game the whole season just after signing a contract, what Salvador Perez did this year trying to carry Kansas City as far as he could, and without solid pitching, he could only carry them so far, it was nothing short of amazing and incredible this year. And he reminds me so much of being kind of the Patrick Mahomes of Kansas City, the guy with the star factor, the it factor. Doesn't have it nationally like Patrick has, but you know who does outside of like Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers in the NFL. But here locally in Kansas City, in our market, he is every bit as important to that franchise. And I believe moving forward, if Kansas City is going to get back to where they have been not so long ago, I think it's going to have to come on the bat and on the catcher's mitt of Salvador Perez. Yeah, and the one thing that you didn't mention in in that entire uh, talk about Salvi, which I think is really important to recognize, the guy's coming off Tommy John surgery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you would have told me at the beginning of the year that Salvador Perez would lead the major leagues in home runs just after coming off of Tommy John, not only would I have not believed you, I wouldn't have believed you if you had told me that he was going to lead the Royals in home runs, much <laughs> less the entire major leagues in home runs. I Maybe mean, his two best seasons coming off of Tommy John. Oh, yeah. The the renaissance that he has had coming off of that surgery uh, is just incredible to me. You know, the fact that... 
uh, you know, I, and I know that, you know, historically, uh, you know, the Tommy John surgery it's not what has, it used to be. it's not what it used to be. And really a lot of pitchers that, you know, I know Savi's not a pitcher, but a lot of pitchers that would have that uh, surgery, you know, they came back, but did they really ever come back? And there were some success stories, but I know it's different from a catcher than it is, or even just a, a, a position player as opposed sure. to a pitcher. Uh, but what he's done coming off of that surgery. And then, you know, the whole conversation about the contract, uh, you know, that he signed and will he live up to that contract? And, you know, a lot of people criticize that contract and, you know, they're locking in a lot of money to Salvador Perez for a long time. It, you know, is the guy going to really be able to produce at a high level for so long? Uh, I think, you know, obviously, He's proved those doubters wrong at least this year. Uh, that's that's for sure. That and you know I I really believe that even if and I don't remember I don't have the contract details memorized. I don't remember how long of a contract it was. It was probably what five years or something like that. It was that's kind of a, right. I think it was a five year deal. Even if he doesn't end up being super productive that entire stretch. Just what he's done in year one of that contract, in my opinion, makes it worth locking Salvador Perez up. And not even to mention, like you mentioned, what he does for the community, who he is as the face of the Royals franchise. Uh, it was a smart move. I said it was a smart move when they signed him to that deal. Um, I'm doubling down on that now, and I'm sure that a lot of other people are too. Uh, Salvador Perez should retire a Royal. Um, I, I think that he is the not only the most valuable player for the Royals, but he's the most important player for the Royals as well. Sometimes those two things, uh, I think they can be misconstrued, but it's important that people recognize just how essential he is for the morale uh, and just for the overall direction that the Royals are going. If I'm Dayton Moore, if I'm Mike Matheny, if I'm John Sherman, you've got to continue to try to build this squad around what Salvador Perez needs in the same way that Clark Hunt and Brett Veach and Andy Reid build the Chiefs around Patrick Mahomes. I couldn't agree with you more about that assessment. I believe it, lo it looks like from, according to Spotrack.com, I believe it is a six-year deal worth six about deal. $90 million. He okay. got $13 million this year on the first year of that deal. He gets $18 million in 2022, and then 20, 20, 22. And it looks like there's a $2 million option in 2026. So it's obviously a front-loaded contract yeah. with, with the signing bonuses for him. And the last year, he basically you, you get him for free. Uh, moving on from Salvador Perez, because obviously he was the best player the Royals had this year. I believe that Whit Merrifield, moving forward for Kansas City for as long as they have him, he needs to be the long-term second baseman for Kansas City. I know that they have looked at him in the outfield and other positions. Uh, he is a guy who can play a lot of different positions, and it's still a valuable guy to have on your team, someone who can do that, who can be a utility Swiss Army knife kind of a player. But Merrifield this year, Tommy, was the best second baseman defensively in the year. He led the major leagues in defenses, uh, defensive runs saved. He was the sixth best player in all of baseball in that stat. 7.4 defensive runs above average led all second baseman in the league this year. If he doesn't win the gold glove at that position, that will be an absolute crime and a sham because he was the best player at that position defensively without peer. He is only the 19th player since 1969 to hit 40 doubles and steal 40 bases in the same season. His stolen base number, Tommy, has been far higher, and I don't know why there is this correlation, 
but he has stolen way more bases playing on the infield than he has in the outfield. I know that Bobby Wood Jr. is coming, and I know Bobby Wood Jr. is going to be at the major league level next year. We'll get to him in a bit. But in my mind, Whit Merrifield moving off the infield for next season to make room for Bobby Wood Jr., who's not going to play second base. He's going to be a third baseman probably at the major league level. I don't see. I know he's listed as a shortstop. I don't see him as being a shortstop. I think he plays third at the major league level. For me, I want Whit Merrifield on the infield next year. He affects the game with his defense. He affects the game stealing bases. That's been the Kansas City identity when they have had their best years. He had a little bit of a slump offensively, but if he gets back to leading the league in hits again and stealing 40 bases and being the best defensive second baseman, you put that together with Salvi, some better pitching, and then Bobby Witt Jr. coming up at the third baseman slot, boy, you've got a lot to be excited about. Yeah, you know, the Royals, for better or for worse, in my opinion, are linked to Whit Merrifield um, for a while I don't think longer. That's a bad thing. And I think the. I don't think it is either, but the Royals missed an opportunity to trade him at his peak value. Um, and, and I'm not saying they should have. I'm just saying that, especially when the Royals were losing 100 games in a season, um, you know, Whit Merrifield was prime trade bait. He has been for a couple of seasons now. But and Tommy. the fact that the Royals. I'm sorry. Isn't that what we complain about for the Royals that we get these great players and then they get up to their highest value and then we get rid of them. They they've kept, they've kept him now. Don't we have to be appreciative for that, that they're obviously, I mean, at least appearing to be building for something rather than building the next Yankee star. Yeah, you do. But at the same time, you have to then use him correctly when you keep him. And to, to your point, you know, Whit Merrifield is an exceptional second baseman. Yes. And, you know, the fact that at least, you know, I know that he sort of moved kind of around the field and I know he did get, you know, time at second base, obviously, throughout the season. But, he, you know, there was a stretch during that season where he went from an exceptional second baseman to a middle of the road at best outfielder. Uh, and so you're the value that Whit Merrifield has, and you hit the nail on the head. It's playing second base defensively, and it's stealing bases. Um, in in previous years, it's also been hitting the baseball. Um, I, he he, I think he joined a pretty exclusive club, forty doubles, forty steals, and he's yep. done it multiple times in a season. I think there have only been six or seven other players in the American League in the history of the American League that have done it multiple times. Um, Whit Merrifield is one of them. So kudos to him for that. I know he would have liked to have just overall more hits and a higher batting average this season. So if you know, I, I, he gave an interview where he said that he didn't live up to his expectations offensively this season um, but he he does have value in those in those key areas but when you take him away from that natural second base position where he is elite then you take a above average baseball player let's face it Whit Merrifield is all things considered an above average baseball player there's nothing wrong with that you take him down to kind of just an average player if he's not playing second base where he's a lead at. So, you know, long term for the Royals, considering that they stuck with him, that they didn't trade him, you have to play him properly. So when I say they missed an opportunity to trade him uh, and he had peak trade value, that doesn't mean I was advocating for them to trade him. I'm just saying as soon as that door closes to get as much value out of a player as possible, then you're kind of married to him for better or for worse. And you have to use him properly and he has to produce for you. I think that he is a borderline all-star player. If he gets up to hitting, you know, 290 again, 
with yeah. the numbers that he has in terms of the power hitting for doubles. He's never going to be a 40, 40, 40 home run, you know, 40 stolen base guy. But if you can get 40 doubles, 40 steals in a season, I think the Royals take that all year long. And I think that Nicky Lopez, I'm going to advocate for him to be the long-term solution at shortstop. He had 300 this year in 151 games with 565 plate appearances, by far the largest sample size we have in a single season for him. So what do you do with that Alberto Mondesi then? Move long on. Term. Okay. Move right. on. I, I understand that for Lopez, this is by far his best offensive season. It's his biggest sample size. He had stolen one base in his first 159 games. One. He stole 22 this year. He got caught only once. Defensively, I get that he's not a huge benefit on the left side of the infield. He was 11th among shortstops out of about 22 in defensive runs saved this year. Adalberto Mondesi was sixth in the short season last year. For me, it's not enough for me to want him back because we don't know if Adalberto Mondesi can actually stay healthy. We, we have no idea. He is hurt literally all the time. So if I can get a guy who can hit 300, now is he going to hit 300 next year? Probably not. But if you can give me a guy who can plug in there and hit 250, 275, and I know what I have, I'm going to take that over probably a better defensive playmaker at Alberto Mondesi. And if, I mean, can you believe that? Could you believe in any future season that Alberto Mondesi would ever hit 300 over a full season of 150 plus games with? let's say 500 to 700 plate appearances, I don't see Adalberto's ceiling being that high. I didn't see Nicky Lopez as being that high, but I definitely don't see Mondesi's being that high. I look at Mondesi and say, you know what? If he gets you to the 280s, that's going to be a hell of a year for him. Lopez just hit 300 in 151 games. So my infield next year, probably going to be Witt, Lopez, Merrifield, figure out first base. So I, I guess, and I don't disagree about you've got to make some hard choices about what you you're going to do with that Alberto Mondesi moving forward. I mean, you know, keep in mind the the Royals, um, Mondesi is a longer tenured member of the team than nearly anyone else currently on the roster, except for maybe Salvador Perez. Sure. Uh, he's been there for a long time and the guy is still in his mid twenties. Um, it's hard to believe that you think back to that 2015 World Series Modesty was on the roster for the World Series that yeah. year. Uh, he's been with the franchise for a long time. So you've got to make some hard decisions about him moving forward. But my hesitation is you would like to recoup some value because you pumped in a lot of value with him over the years, a lot of resources into him over the years. Uh, I'm just not sure there's a whole lot of value that anybody's going to take. I mean, I think somebody will probably look at him as a reclamation project. Like, Hey, if we can get him the right support, if we can limit his playing time, if we can try to mitigate any sort of injury risk as best we can get him at the right price, maybe we would take him off the Royals hands. Uh, But that's a lot of maybes there uh, and and a lot of contingencies in place. I'm just not sure that the Royals are going to be able to recoup the value. So maybe, um, I don't know, maybe you keep him and you, you know, you you under, Well, you under you got to understand that he's going to be maybe a platoon guy. He's not an everyday guy. He's not someone that's going to stick around. You know, he's not going to he's not going to play 162 games. Um, but you put him in there when you need a spark, and maybe he's the guy. I'm not. I mean, I'm not going to 
you know, be the cheerleader for that. What do you think about Nikki Lopez? Nikki Lopez, uh, for someone who I felt like had zero chance of sticking on with the Royals in their starting lineup uh, as long as he has and in the future. Uh, I got to say, I've come around. I've come around on him. I, I, really, I mean, the guy hit 300. I mean, you're going to obviously come around on right. someone like that. So my the big question with him is going to be, is that sustainable year in and year out? Uh, and so maybe you keep that contingency plan in Adalberto Mondesi as someone who, okay, you know, we're going to give the job to Nicky Lopez. Mondi, we're going to keep you on the roster. You're going to be our backup guy and, uh, you know, be ready to take over if Lopez you know, can't keep it going in 2022. You look at the minor leagues and obviously if, if thank goodness he isn't, if, if, uh, if a boy Weston was here, he'd be telling us spewing ad nauseum about, Oh my gosh, these prospects. There's only one prospect I want to talk about. So this is a shout out for you, Mr. Mills, because I know that you would come assassinate us. If we didn't mention your boy, Bobby Wood jr. Who had a hell of a minor league season, 33 home runs, 97 RBIs, 29 steals, really should have had a 30-30 season, would have been just the seventh player in the last 20 years to have a 30-30 season in the minors. He actually got his 30th stolen base, but it was taken away from him because a game got rained out and was not yet official, and they did not go back and resume that game, and he got thrown out on another steal, stolen base attempt. He's already the George Brett, the, the George Brett hitter of the year for the Royals, best minor league hitter they've had. This guy is ready. He hit 293 this year, 33 homers, 29 steals, 35 doubles. To me, he is the third baseman opening day, lock it up, stone cold, no chance that it doesn't happen barring some injury. Because right now, what do you have if you're the Royals? You've got, you know, Adalberto Mondesi has played some third base. You've got Kevin Gutierrez who's played some third base. You've plugged in. That guy like Hunter Dozier at third base at times. For me, it is Bobby Witt Jr. time next year. The fans want to see him. The fans clamor for him. And, and let's be honest, what the Royals have gotten at third base the last few years, it's not good enough to keep Bobby Witt Jr. back in the minors. It just isn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're going to need to get your hot take horn ready here for a second. Are you? What are you saying? Uh, yeah, this is what I'm going to tell you. So y- this is kind of a... Uh, I need you to expose me for a second because all the way back at the beginning of the season, when we did our preview, uh, I don't know if you remember this, my bold prediction of the year for the Royals was that Bobby Witt Jr. would be the American League Rookie of the Year. You did. This season. I, I do remember that. Yeah, you got that one wrong. So I assume so, that that would mean you're all in on him next year, Rookie of the Year next year, right? I was all in on him this year. He should have been called up a long time ago in he my opinion. He could have been. It's the, asinine to me. It is absolutely asinine to me that the Royals rushed up guys like Daniel Lynch and Jackson Kowar to pitch well before they were ready to pitch in the bigs. But for some reason, they're holding back Bobby Witt Jr. Like, we got to be careful with him. We want to make sure he gets enough reps in the minors. The guy, if you watched him, and I watched him in person play here in Wichita against the wind surge, he is ready to play in the major leagues right now. He was hitting double-A pitching, Uh, I mean, like it was nothing. I mean, he is ready to be in the bigs and think about just keep this in perspective. If you had to name, and I'm sure you know the answer to this, but if anyone listening were to name the Royals minor leaguer that led all of the minor leagues in home runs this season, 
you would automatically think of Bobby Witt Jr. It wasn't. It was MJ Melendez. He led the minor leagues in home runs this year. So think about how special a talent like Bobby Witt Jr. is. What position does he play? Does he play right field? No, he's catcher. He's uh, So unfortunately, there's Salvi right there. So he hit 41 home runs during the minor league season. At least we've got the catcher position uh, locked up with with the Royals organization. Do we trade him to... The Royals need pitching, Tommy. They hey, need I, pitching. I say convert Melendez to a first baseman. That's what Ooh. I would do and, and bring him up. Like but uh, but, so but going Carlos back Santana to Santana did not have a great year. Yeah, going back to my point about Bobby Wood Jr. How special of a talent are you when you don't even lead the the your organization team. of the minors? It's your team in home runs, but yet that's what everybody you're talking about you and the talent that you have. So yeah, opening day. Third baseman. If the Royals with go you. with anyone else to open up third base Fireable in the 2022 offense. season, I don't want to go that far, but I think they're making a grave mistake. Like, why would you, why would you hold them back at this point? What else no does idea. he have to prove in the minors? No idea. No, nothing to me. I was, I was a guy that said, "Hey, let him go. Let him have his time. Let him, you know, get confident." Boy, he should be feeling all kinds of confidence. Sure. Going into next year. Uh, we mentioned Dozier and Soler. Um, I said the Royals were not going to be any good unless these guys turned it around, and they never did. Dozier had two. Well, Soler did, but he turned it around with my Atlanta Braves. So. Well, I mean, he for for the Royals, he hit 192, so he didn't <laughs> do anything for Kansas City. Okay, Hunter Dozier, no. Uh, Carlos Santana had some streaks in there. Played 158 games. Not what I want as the long-term solution. I know that you and Weston were high on him. He hit 214 this year. I'd rather have that In my defense, I was high on Carlos Santana as a serviceable this-year-only kind of thing. Like, it was a low-risk signing. Why not bring him on, whatever. Didn't Weston say this was a sign that the Royals were ready to compete now? Isn't that what he said? I think he was referring... He's not even here. I, I think he was referring more to Andrew Benintendi, in my opinion. But, you know, he, he's solid. not here to defend himself. So what are you going to do? He played solid. Andrew Benintendi was solid, hit 274. The, the best starting pitcher this year for Kansas City, unfortunately, Tommy, was Danny Duff. And he isn't any longer <laughs> on the team. We got Daniel Lynch, Mike Miter, and Brad Keller with ERAs over five. They were not good enough. I, I thought Chris Bubich and Brady Singer do have some potential. I like sure. what the, I saw out of them. Jackson Kowar was an absolute train wreck. Get this guy out of here. Talk about not ready. His ERA is 11. What are we doing with him? How did he make nine appearances this year? Ridiculous. Royals got solid relief from Scott Barlow and Josh Dahlman. So I feel like your anchors in the bullpen are where they need to be. I believe next year, Carlos Hernandez has to be in the conversation for a starting spot. 11 games he started. 24 appearances, 6-2 and two with a 3.7 ERA. I think you need to give this guy a really hard look in the offseason because starting pitching is the biggest area in which Kansas City can improve. There are guys in the bullpen, too. The Wade Davis experience, I love you, Wade Davis. You got the last out in the World Series. You were the best closer for like two years, maybe three in baseball, but your time is done. you got to go now. I really want to see Carlos Hernandez get a look as one of the, maybe not the opening day starter. I don't know who that would be next year. He's got to be in the look for being in the top three of the Royals rotation. 
Yeah, 2022, in my opinion, is going to be a make-or-break year for Cal Elger as pitching coach for the Royals um, because that's wow. just been a, an overall uh, disaster. Um, you know, guys like Brad Keller, who had a strong 2020, and you had high hopes for him coming into 2021, and that plane went off the side wow. of the mountain yeah, big time. Um, you know, I, I you've got to take a look at what you're doing with him. Uh, Mike Miner was supposed to be the veteran presence in the rotation, the guy that's been there for a while, along with Danny Duffy, obviously. Um, and Miner had flashes of what he was in the past, but not consistent enough. Yeah. Couldn't sustain it and not consistent enough to uh, warrant that, that rotation spot long-term Brady singer, you know, is serviceable. I think he could be a better pitcher. And that's where I come back to what Cal Eldred is doing for the team. He should be developing guys like Brady Singer into the future. And really, we've seen Brady Singer pitch okay at times, but again, not sustainable and not consistent enough. Um, So really, again, you know, we sound like a broken record because we talked about this at the beginning of the season about how the, the starting pitching was going to be the biggest question mark for the Royals moving forward. And now we're at the end of the season looking ahead to next year. That hasn't changed at all. No. You know, and, and and so I don't know if that's going to be something that Dayton Moore and company take a look at in the offseason. Are there signings that they can look at? I mean, we obviously know that Kansas City usually doesn't go for the big splash. But what does the free agent market look like when it comes to starting pitching? That's how they got Mike uh, Mike Miner during the offseason. So you got to take a look at that for sure. You've got, again, some young guys. But if the small sample size with guys like Lynch and Kowar are any indication, they're still not ready for the bigs. No. So what's your contingency plan for 2022? The Royals offensively, led by Salvador Perez, were good, but the pitching was not. And that was a big reason why the Royals went on that you know terrible stretch in May and June. So what are they going to do to, uh, to fix that in 2022? So, you know, they got rid of Danny Duffy. Um, you know, Duffy had been in Kansas City for a long time. He was kind of the uh, the the emotional leader of the pitching rotation, I would say, over the past couple of seasons. So what do you do to replace that? Big questions remain for the pitching for Kansas City. It's kind of interesting when you think about where this team is going to be next year. You know, I think overall, mostly reasons to be hopeful, but a lot of reasons, a lot of questions remain. What is your too early prediction for Kansas City next year? And what do you think this offseason looks like for Kansas City? You're right in that the Royals in the offseason typically do not make the splashy signings, but they have proven that midseason, August, September, right around the trade deadline, if they feel like they're only a couple guys away, they will bring in a Zobrist. They will go and get a Johnny Cueto in the middle of the season. Can the Royals put themselves in that kind of a position this year where they can be just a guy or two away from maybe having that kind of a year? I don't know if they're that close. I would like to think that maybe we're on the cusp of getting some wild card baseball in, maybe just competing for the wild card again looking to get back around that 80 win mark again, having a winning season for a change next year. Your too early prediction for the 2022 Royals, Tommy. Well, I'm sorry. If they have an 80 win season, they're not going to be a wild card team. No, they're um, not. That's just not going to happen. So uh, I think you have to temper expectations a little bit. Um, I would like Are to you say around 80 wins. Yeah, I think if the Royals can get to 500, that's a win next season. I agree. Um, and, and here's the reason why. 
as you just said, the Royals usually don't go out and make a splash during the offseason. They rely on the talent in-house and in the farm system. And so if they can get consistent production out of Bobby Witt Jr., assuming that he's there, if they call him up, uh, you know, if they can uh, continue having Salvador Perez performing at a high level, Whit Merrifield getting hits and having a batting average like he has had in the past, not, you know, th- this past year notwithstanding, and if they can get a little bit more consistent pitching, I think they might be a 500 team. But it's all going to hinge on the pitching. If all of a sudden guys like Daniel Lynch and Jackson Coar turn a corner and they end up staples in that rotation early in the season, I'm not guaranteeing they will. But if they do, then they might be better than a 500 team. Maybe. But it's really going to come down to what the pitching can do. Um, I think that the talent of Bobby Witt Jr. is... It's undeniable, but it can only take you so far. He can only bat a handful of times in a game. So what are you going to do the rest of the way if your pitching staff gives up six or seven runs a game? So there are major question marks on that side of the baseball, and that's going to come down to whether or not the Royals have a repeat of this season. I really don't think the Royals are going to lose 100 games again. Uh, if they hold pad, if they if they hold steady with who they are, I don't think they're going to go back to where they were you know, in, in 2019 and, and so on and so forth. Um, but it's going to be a question mark about whether they stay where they're at while winning seven five-ish games if they can get to 500 or maybe a little bit more is it a playoff team i would say a wild card opportunity would be the absolute ceiling as to where kansas city can get to in 2022 we are only about four and four months of change from pitchers and catchers reporting are you even going to bring up the fact that my braves are in the playoffs and they they won the nl east uh no wasn't going to bring it up at all but since you brought it up how are you feeling about your tribe uh, you know, it's, they are you were um, negative on them earlier. In I the was, year. they turned, they, negative. Hey, they went out at the trade deadline. They got a lot of guys, including yeah, Jorge Soler, who actually has played really well for the Braves. I'm glad since he, he joined got to them. play good for one of the teams that you care yeah. about. Not the right one, but one of the teams. I'm pretty sure his, his average, uh, to end the season is somewhere around like 220 or something like that. So he played, he hit the ball pretty well. He had a this pretty good average me. with the Braves when they traded him. They got Adam Duvall, they got Jock Peterson, they got Eddie Rosario from uh, the Indians. So, you know, they they won the weakest division in baseball. Uh, they finished with like 88 wins on the season. However, um, they've got a lot of talent and a pretty good pitching staff. So they play the Brewers in the NLDS. We'll see how that goes. The Royals will be the season opening team for the brand new Cleveland Guardians coming up on March 31st, 2022. Moving back to football, the Chiefs appear to be back on track. They go to 2-2 two and two on the season, a 42-30 win over the Eagles. Patrick Mahomes, not quite perfect, but he was darn good. 24 for 30, 278 yards, another interception in September, or I guess it was October. So he's out of September where he's supposedly immortal, not this year. He did have five touchdowns, three to the Cheetah Tyree Kill, 11 catches, 186 yards. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire continues to spark the ground game, 102 ground yards, 14 carries. He averaged over 10 yards per carry and caught a touchdown. Joe Fortson caught a touchdown as well. Chiefs ran for 200 yards on 32 carries. But the defense at times, Tommy, allowed the Eagles to move the ball nearly at will for most of the game. And Jalen Hurts really hurt the Chiefs, 387 yards passing, two scores, The Chiefs were far better on third down than the Eagles were. That was the difference. No one's been able to devise a plan to stop Kelsey and Hill 
What are your thoughts on the Kansas City Chiefs getting back to 500? And by the way, Andy Reid getting his 100th win as the Kansas City Chiefs head coach. Yeah, you know, they they won 42 to 30. Um, I'm not sure if I've been as disappointed with a 42 to 30 win uh, as I was on Sunday. Um, Yeah, it's great the Chiefs got back to 500. Um, It was great that they, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of drama as far as coming coming down to the final minute. So that was nice for a change. But I think it's time to sound the alarm on this defense. They are bad. They are a terrible defense. They are one of, if not the worst defenses in the National Football League through the first four weeks of the season. I don't know what has changed. Uh, I know there aren't as many playmakers on the defense as there was a year ago. Frank Clark has been out, I think, every week except for week one. Or maybe he didn't play week one, but he played week two. Regardless, he's only played, I think, in one game uh, this season. They've got Chris Jones in a different position than what he's used to. Um, You know, they don't have a ton of help in the secondary. Bashad Breland isn't there anymore. He was kind of a distraction at times, uh, but he he was pretty good in coverage. Um, really, other than Teron Matthew, there's just really not a playmaker defensively for Kansas City. That's a concern. It's a major concern. I think my level of concern, uh, for good reason, has grown from week to week. Before, I just kind of thought, okay, well, you know, they'll get it shorn up. You know, they've got Steve Spagnola. He'll make it. He'll make it better. And it hasn't. In fact, it's gotten worse, in my opinion. And you're right. The Eagles ran all over Kansas City, both through the air and on the ground. The Chiefs could not stop anything. And the Eagles, they don't have an incredibly dynamic offense. Jalen Hurts, you know, I think will be a good quarterback in the league, but I don't think he's there quite yet. And they made him look like, you know, he's Kyler Murray or Russell Wilson out there. Um, you know, he he absolutely dominated uh, Kansas City. And, and that's really concerning. And the reason why is because, yeah, they were able to beat the Eagles with that kind of performance. They will not beat the Buffalo Bills next week on Sunday Night Football if the defense plays this week the way that they did this past week or for that matter any other week this season so i'm officially sounding the alarm on the chiefs defense i don't know what it's going to take but they got to do something the offense thankfully has been there every step of the way when they have been needed for the most part obviously we have talked about the really crushing uh, turnovers that they have had the previous two weeks and another interception by Patrick Mahomes, but when he's thrown for 278 yards and five touchdowns, obviously that's pretty forgivable. Kelsey and Hill are just unstoppable. They bracketed Kelsey last week with double coverage. He only caught four balls, but Tyreek Hill, who was bracketed with double coverage the week before, was there. And I just don't find I don't think that teams will be able to find a way to be able to guard both unless you have somebody, some sort of a unicorn that can guard one of those two guys one-on-one. Because so far, it does not appear like anybody can guard Travis Kelsey one-on-one at the linebacker spot, and nobody can guard Tyree Kill from a defensive back perspective one-on-one. So you have to throw two on one of those guys, and whoever the option is that has single coverage That's what Patrick Mahomes will find. Kelsey was a monster last week. Defenses are never going to be able to take away both of his top targets. Jalen Hurts is showing me a little bit of a something, though, because uh, pass already over 100, second time this season, good command of his offense, thought he limited mistakes. Chiefs registered just three tackles for loss in the game, didn't force a turnover. They did get some key fourth down stops. 
So give them credit for that. But defensively, um, you know, very interesting Bills game coming up here, Tommy. It's a massive game on Sunday Night Football, 720 on NBC. And these were two of the teams, two of the four teams that we thought would be in the running to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl. They've won three straight after losing week one to Pittsburgh. But you look at the Bills, their last three wins have not been particularly impressive. They've beaten the Dolphins, Washington, and the Texans. Three bad teams. Three teams that are uh, that are not impressive. This game is an arrowhead. Josh Allen, now he already has 1,000 yards passing and completing 64% of his passes, nine touchdowns, two interceptions. And Buffalo's averaging about 145 on the ground. They shut out Miami and Houston, but the Steelers and Washington, the Steelers haven't been that good since their season opening win either. They both scored about 21 points on the Bills. I don't know if we know exactly how good this Bills team is. I don't disagree that of your expectation that they should be better than the Eagles, but their strength of schedule so far, I, I need to see a little bit more from Buffalo before I know uh, what kind of a team they really are. We know exactly who the Buffalo Bills are because Why? not only not only are they beating bad teams, they are blowing out bad teams. It's not like they're beating them by a touchdown. They have outscored they've outscored in the last three weeks their opponents one eighteen to twenty one. 118 to 21. They're so I bad think, teams, though. I know they're bad teams, but anybody can beat anybody in the NFL from week to week. Look at the Jets against the Titans <laughs> last week. I mean, come on. Like, it happens. Okay, teams enough. can win in the National Football League. And even if they don't, even the bad teams a lot of times can keep it close. There's a lot more parity in the NFL than there is in like college football where Alabama can just run over everybody. So uh, while those teams may be bad, Buffalo has asserted themselves as not just beating these teams, but blowing out these teams. Kansas City is going to have to not only improve defensively, but they're going to have to have another elite offensive performance. I wouldn't be surprised to see a game against Buffalo on Sunday Night Football kind of mirror that game on Monday Night Football a couple of years ago that the Chiefs had against the Rams, where it was like, what, 59 to 56 or something like that. I don't think it'll be that high scoring of a game, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it be like, I don't know, 45-42 or something like that, uh, because I just Kansas City can't stop anybody. But then, of course, they've got Mahomes and company uh, to put up points on the board. So they're going to need another top-notch offensive performance from Patrick Mahomes, uh, you know, from Tyreek Hill, from Travis Kelsey. They might have Josh Gordon on Sunday night, according to, to Andy Reid. But I think the biggest X factor for Kansas City is Clyde edwards helaire I got to say, I've been really impressed with him. He's bounced back well after that costly fumble a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, really consistent on the ground. He's opened up a whole new area of the offense that we really haven't seen for quite a while in that running game. And it's a good compliment to what Patrick Mahomes can do. I did didn't feel like Mahomes other than that one bad throw uh, against the Eagles. I don't really feel like he thought he had to do everything against sure. the Eagles like he's had to do the first three weeks of the season. He was able to lean on Clyde Edwards-Hilaire a little bit. And I think it was also great that we got to see the, the running game involved because it slowed the game down a little bit for Kansas City. They got to be a little bit more methodical, which again is strategy because if the defense for Kansas City stays off the field, they can't give up any points. So <laughs> if you can have long, sustained drive drives offensively for Kansas City, that might be best 
as opposed to the big the big plays that you know the ball ends up right back with the other team and the defense can't stop them. So it's nice to see the running game in place, but you know it'll be interesting to see how that entire strategy plays out on Sunday night. Well, and especially because it's polar opposite. You wanted to know how good the Chiefs were on defense or maybe not so good. Well, they're the second worst team in football and team defense. They've given up the most yards per play this year in the NFL at 6.9. And they have they have a stat of expected points contributed by all defense. It's a sabermetric kind of a stat. They put, you know, everything into a into a formula and it calculates the average number, the expected number of points that a defense has either gained your team or lost your team. The Chiefs are last in the league at negative 75 points that they have contributed that deserves, to the Chiefs. That deserves a hot take horn for the Chiefs. That's crazy. It is. I, I don't just, I, it's indefensible. And the thing that is also interesting is that the Chiefs will be going up, up against the number one defense. Now, as I've said, they have not exactly been playing the greatest offenses in the world, but Buffalo statistically is the number one defense in the league right now. They're averaging, giving up just four yards per play. They are the number one passing defense, and they are the number four rushing defense. So this will be a kind of a test for Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes that they really haven't faced this year. Baltimore has had a very solid rushing defense. The Browns have also had a very solid rushing defense. So that is something that they will have been able to adjust to. The Browns, it turns out, have had a very solid pass defense, but nobody else other than Cleveland has had the kind of defense that Buffalo is going to bring to Arrowhead Stadium on Sunday. Yeah, I think that just shows even more the importance of Clyde Edwards E. Lair and Daryl Williams. Sure. Uh, you know, An offensively running. Play. Yeah, exactly. Which I do have to say, you know, we've talked so much about how bad the defense has been and the turnovers uh, that the offense has had. We've neglected to talk about, and I think a lot of people have neglected to talk about, how much more solid the offensive line is for Kansas City. I, I see a, a huge difference in Joe Tooney and Orlando Brown and Creed Humphrey and, you know, everybody else that in this rebuilt offensive line. That's been a positive for sure for Kansas City. So, you know, it's going to come down to the point of attack, you know, for the Chiefs against the Bills. And, you know, I, I gave you a really hard time when we were previewing the Chiefs and you said, you know, hey, they could go 0-5 you know, to start the season if they don't play right. And they were never going to go 0 and 5, but they, you know, if, I mean, just a couple minutes away. They could have started 0 and 3. And if they don't play. Maybe they go up to Philadelphia with no confidence. Yeah. And of course, this Bills matchup is big and it's going to be pretty tough. Uh, You know, so it's, I think that ending this stretch of five games at 3 and 2, uh, you know, before the schedule gets a little bit easier for Kansas City. I think you can live with that. It's not ideal. You can move forward with it. Um, but I don't think you want to drop below 500 again and in this five-game stretch at two and three. So, um, it's again, you know, you've got to shore up uh, the defense for sure. Um, and I, and it not, it's not just one area defensively that I think Literally the Chiefs are struggling with. Literally every way you with. can play defense. They were struggling in coverage. They were struggling in tackling. They were struggling in stopping the run. They were struggling in getting away from blockers. Like they just, they was awful they were all struggling the way getting around. 11 guys on the field at one time. Yeah. Yeah. It was absolutely abysmal defensively, you know, and it's not like Philadelphia has this incredibly potent rushing attack. Miles Sanders has been mediocre. Kenneth Gainwell, who? 
He was blowing the Chiefs up, uh, both out of the backfield, catching the football, and and some of his runs were breaking off also. And then, of course, Jalen Hurts is pretty mobile. So they've got a lot to shore up this week, and uh, we'll see if they can do it. Once again, Sunday Night Football on NBC against the Bills for Kansas City. Skylar Thompson is back for Kansas State. KSU had OU on the ropes again, looking for their third straight win over the Sooners, but the defense not quite solid enough to get it done. The team's really slugged it out offensively, especially in the second half. Kansas State got a miraculous kickoff return with a minute 20 left on a Malik Knowles 97-yard jaunt to the end zone as he approaches do-not-kick-to territory, his second kick return touchdown of the year. But game started with another big play, really turned the momentum early in favor of Oklahoma. They moved the ball down, but a fumble right into the hands of Nick Bonito by Jacardia Wright, who returns at 70 yards to the Kansas State 19, up to the Kansas State defense. They held it to a field goal, but boy, it surely felt like a 10-point swing from going down the field thinking we're going to punch this in versus we're down 3 nothing. Honestly, I thought the game's score made it look a little closer than it really was. Oklahoma ripped right through the Cat defense coming out of halftime. It was a three-point game at halftime. They ripped right through the purple to make it 20-10. to Cats go three and out. Oklahoma comes back on a 90-yard drive to make it 27-10. to Thompson gets the Cats back into it immediately on a 54-yard completion to Garber. Deuce Vaughn ends up scoring, but Kansas State was chasing scores throughout the entire game. Finally caught up with that last-second kickoff return. Could not get the onside kick, so I thought an opportunity for Kansas State here in this game, Tommy, but boy, was that huge play extremely costly for Kansas State. Yeah, I know you look at the final score and you think, okay, well, Kansas State very you know easily could have won this game, and 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 that's probably the truth. Um, Oklahoma is vulnerable this year more so than they have been in years past, but. This is more, I think, of a statement about Oklahoma than it is about Kansas State. This was a get-right game for the Sooners. They've not looked good uh, early in the season. And and there were stretches where they didn't look great against Kansas State either. Um, but I think this was a big um, motivation game for Oklahoma. They want people to recognize that they're not going anywhere in the Big 12. They may not be as dominant of a... Uh, program as they have been in years past, but they can still win the Big 12. They probably will still win the Big 12. And then it's about obviously representing in the playoffs. So this was a, a big statement win, I think, for them, especially against a team that has had the Sooners number in years past. For Kansas State, the biggest takeaway, in my opinion, is how great it was to see Skyler Thompson not only back Hell on the yeah. field, but be effective, you know, as well. His final line, of course, was 29 of 41, 320 and three TDs. Um, no picks. You're not going to, no picks. You're not going to, you're not going to see that from Will Howard. Nothing against Will Howard. You're not going to see that from him. Um, and the fact that Skylar Thompson was healthy enough to be able to start this game and then not only start it, but then be effective. Um, I, I think that gives a lot of hope to the Wildcat Nation moving forward if he can continue to stay healthy because this gives Kansas State an opportunity at three and two. They're not out of it by any means. Um, you know, they did creep into the top 25 last week uh, in or a couple, I think two weeks ago. Yeah. So with a healthy Skylar Thompson and with Deuce Vaughn doing what Deuce Vaughn does, running and catching the football, they've still got a chance to to have a really strong and solid season. 
Kansas State ran 27 times, 109 yards. Deuce went 15 for 51. Did catch 10 balls for 104 yards and a touchdown. Landry Weber and Phillip Brooks caught the other touchdowns. I think wide receiver play is still a concern for Kansas State because we are this far into the season. They had their quarterback. You can be a hater on Lewis or Will Howard if you want. My – and I – Obviously, the Skylar Thompson play, the the change at quarterback was immediate and it was significant. Skylar Thompson is by far the number one Kansas State guy without peer. There's no question about that. But I'm still looking for that wide receiver that really scares me if I'm a defensive player. The wide receiver that I know that I have got to guard or else he is going to make me pay on any particular play. And I don't think Kansas State has that this year. I don't think they had that last year. I think that that holds back the other guys who are just quite honestly average quarterbacks. Skylar Thompson found a way with 320 going dink and dunk and making the smart play, the smart read. He sees the game better than the other two options that Kansas State has. First downs were even in this game, Tommy. Kansas State had more total offense. They had 134 more kickoff return yards. They led time of possession by five minutes. They went four for five on fifth down. But I, in games like that, you can win all those stats you want to win. If you can't get the big play when you need it, I know they had one on special teams, but it didn't come at the right time. It came at the time that you know it didn't really matter at that point because you had to get another onside kick, you know, I feel like they just, they have got to recruit or develop that deep ball threat, or at least mid 30 to 40 yard threat. That's going to stretch the defense out and give you that big play offensively when you need one. Well, it allows defenses to zero in on Deuce Vaughn uh, because they know he's the playmaker that Kansas State has. And you know, it, it allows them to be able to bottle up the run. Now, he did get his catching the football against the Sooners. Had a touchdown, had over 100 yards in receiving. But again, you know, the Oklahoma, they limited what he was able to do on the ground. 15 attempts, 51 yards, averaging under three and a half yards a carry. So they were able to bottle him up. And I think it's because... They know that the Wildcats don't have a deep ball threat, so they can really, I guess, stack the box, you know, try to keep, you know, Deuce Vaughn contained. He, he again, like I said, got his catching the football, but they really, I think they're lacking, I agree with you, that deep ball threat uh, to really open up the offense and be able to provide multiple different weapons and multiple different playmakers. Julius Brents with the interception for Kansas State, by the way. He continues to play very, very well in the secondary Farmageddon is coming up for the Wildcats. It's a 6.30 p.m. kickoff at Bill Snyder Family Stadium, and that will be on the Deuce coming up this weekend as the uh, Kansas State Wildcats take on the Iowa State Cyclones. Lastly, for college football, the Jayhawks blasted by the Cyclones in this one, and it was really over before it even began. 28 to nothing before you could blink in the first half, and the trend of KU being in the ball game through the first 30 minutes, ended in a very abrupt and vicious way up at Jack Trice Stadium. I thought that this was a glimpse into what could have been for KU. KU ran the ball effectively. 44 carries, 175 yards, 4.5 yards per carry, but way too many mistakes. Interception by Jason Bean. A KU freshman corner jumping around, giving up basically a free 30-yard touchdown that I could have scored if you were passing to me, Tommy. Jason Bean basically dropped the football 
on a scramble play. Lance Leopold goes for it on fourth and short from KU's own 45-yard line, which to me was inexplicable. And KU lost a yard on the play on a carry by Devin Neal, and Iowa State scores and a one-play drive. Brock Purdy, boom, touchdown next play. You could, like I said, you barely could go to the restroom, get yourself a refill on the cold one, and it's 28-0. You're thinking, well, I've seen all of this game that I need to see because KU has no chance in this game, and it turns out they didn't. They got blasted 59-7 to in really the only non-competitive game through any stretch of the ball game that KU has played this year, but it was absolutely anti-competitive. KU had no chance. Mistakes gave them no chance to win this one. Yeah, I, I got to put my uh, my younger brother on on blast here for a second, um, and you might want to get the hot take horn ready for this. I know really? we've been we've been playing it a lot uh, here on this Today show, but we my, have. yeah, it's been bad. So my my brother Zach, great guy, love you, Zach. He texted me at two fifty one p.m. on Saturday, um, so a couple of hours before game time. Sure. Uh, and he said, and I'm gonna I'm this is my phone. I think. People can see this sure. who are watching it. So this is what he said to me, and I'm going to read it word for word. He said, okay. Iowa State has looked pretty bad this year. KU may have a chance. Whoops. How'd that, how'd that work? I hope he didn't uh, put any money yeah. on that. And uh, I didn't respond. Uh, I didn't even acknowledge uh, what he had said because I already said it on this program last week. I talked about how big of a massacre this was going to be because Kansas, they were, they were getting Kansas at the best possible time for a get right game. Iowa state was, they were furious for good reason. After losing a game to Iowa that I think that they expected to win in uh, the interstate uh, matchup that they have there, the Cyhawk. And then of course, dropping that game to Baylor that they I'm sure expected to win. Should have I won. They were the they're, they're a better won. team than Baylor. They're a better Matt, team than Baylor. Matt Campbell had to have absolutely whipped his players <laughs> up into a frenzy. Like, let's take out all of our frustrations and all of our aggressions on the Kansas Jayhawks. Oh, they did. And they did. Uh, and you know what? And this is, I'll just be completely honest. Um, I was going to watch the game, um, but I knew I was going to come into it a little bit late. And I looked at my phone and it was 28 nothing, And I was like, okay, I'm not even going to turn it on. Nah, now. Like, what's, yeah. like, what's the point of me even do. turning this game on at this I, point? There was no point. I didn't watch it. I, I did not pay attention at all in the second half. It's a 28 like, nothing. Uh, yeah, we're done. Honestly, like, I, don't, I don't think there's really anything for us to break down. Not, like, there's really nothing to talk about. Like, no. they lost 59-7. to It's They're not going to win another game. Lance Leipold has a lot of work to do. I think he can do it. I think he will do it. I think it's going to take some time. I have confidence in him more so than I've had in the past coaches. But as far as the game on Saturday, I honestly, I've got nothing to say. I called it. I I said it last week. I don't need to say it again. I, I don't know what the deal is with KU sports information. I don't want to put anybody on blast, but like, their page is so poorly updated. They don't even have the final score for Iowa State on the page yet. Like you're that <laughs> embarrassed you don't have the final score up yet for like what are we doing here? Their basketball pages are out of date. Like what what's going on up there in Lawrence? Certainly a far cry from when I was going to school and they uh, treated us at KJHK like royalty. Uh KU needs a bye week. They're going to get a bye week. They come back for homecoming against the Red Raiders on October 16th, 3 o'clock kickoff on ESPN+. 
there is one thing that I feel like we can mention about uh, about the game, and not even really about the game. But I don't. Did you happen to see uh, what our good friend Mark Mangino tweeted no, uh, this I did weekend? Not. Did you not did see he? this? What did old so, Keepson would say? <clears throat> so um, a, a guy by the name of John Schlitt, who's a KU alum. Um, I'm not sure what he does for a living, uh, but he tweeted. Um, this was during the game, during the Kansas okay. Iowa State game. He uh, tweeted, and I quote, a reminder that Mark Mangino, a.k.a. at Keepsawn Wood, had won five in a row against Iowa State when Lou committed character assassination against our beloved coach and damned the football program for a decade in the process. Mark Mangino retweeted that and added one simple number, and that was the number seven. He had beaten him seven years in a row <laughs> when that had happened. So he corrected Thanks John lot, Schlitt Lou. saying it was actually seven years in a row that he had defeated Iowa state when that'll happen. So yeah. uh, good, to, good to hear from our, uh, our old friend, Mark Mangino. Yeah. I, I miss Mark, man. I wish I, I wish I could be friends with, uh, with Mark Mangino. I would, I would really like that, but it is, uh, it's not meant to be sadly. So uh, sadly, there's only one segment left of this program and it is time to hit the music as we take a look around Wichita with all the stories that maybe you missed. We try to keep it positive. We'll see if that actually turns out to be the case. It is time for the Wichita Whip Around. Tommy, what do you have on tap for us today as coming from around the Wichita area from sports last week? Well, how about a little bit of shocker basketball news yeah. as the American Athletic Conference schedule has been released. It was released last week. They begin and end league play against East Carolina. The opener for the American Conference is set for Wednesday, December 29th. And then the Pirates make a return trip to Wichita to end the regular season on March 5th. Uh, there are some pretty high-profile games for the Shockers uh, this coming season uh, in the American League. CBS will have a game for the third time in five years on New Year's Day as the Shockers take on Memphis at 11 a.m. And then another CBS matchup, this time at Houston, as Wichita State travels to take on the Cougars. And uh, so, yeah, uh, pretty excited to see the uh, American Conference schedule out as of now. I got a couple things to get to. First of all, I do want to mention Isaiah Castillo of Friends Men's Soccer, the KCAC Offensive Player of the Week for the Falcons this last week. A great offensive season so far. He had five goals, two assists. Falcons had a pair of dominating victories. They have an unbeaten streak of seven straight games for the Falcons. And of course, you know, I'm going to take you all around the City League for high school football as well. Bishop Carroll buries the Redskins of North 54 to nothing. Pittsburgh over South 35 to 20. Andover Trojans. When's the last time they beat a Heights team by 40? 49 wow. to 7. They drill the Falcons. Cape and Mount Carmel. They hung 80 on the Golden Buffaloes. Wow. 80 to 20. They beat Southeast. East over West 52 to 8. Hayesville campus, 28 to 55 winners over Wichita Northwest. And that will set up this next week, Tommy, the K-Preps 5A number one, the K-Preps 5A number two, Bishop Carroll, Cape and Mount Carmel, without a doubt the biggest holy war since at least 2009, which was an ESPNU national telecast. Looking ahead, this matchup could decide the City League. It would end a 24-game losing streak to the Golden Eagles by KMC. The last Crusader 
senior class that graduated with a taste of victory was the class of 2003. That's when I graduated from Topeka West. And they Man, got that old. taste you when are they old. were freshmen. They were freshmen when they beat Bishop Carroll the last time. Wow. Literally, Capen has not beaten Carroll the entire millennium. It was 1999. You could bet they will party like it's 1999 if they can make that dream come true on Friday night. Last year, Tom, you'll recall, it was a three-point escape for the Eagles. Of course, the ESPNU game, that was a two-point game. They have been close for so many years. The streak has got to come to an end at some point. Will it be this week? You've got to be going to the Holy War, right? I mean, especially I knowing I that it's number one and number two, you've got to be there. You've it, got it, to do it. I, 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 like I said, it just I feel so bad going to Carroll games now. It's not Carroll's fault. I love, I still love Bishop Carroll, but I just get such a. I cannot explain to you how uneasy I am being there. Not because I'm not accepted. People aren't happy to see me. That they probably don't remember who I am now, though. But um, I, I just feel like whenever I'm there and I'm watching the game from the stands, I'm in the wrong place. Like, this is not, yeah, this is not where but, I'm supposed to be. I, but I this is it. different. Uh, I mean, this is like history in the making. It could like, be. I, I think you got to put your big girl panties on. and <laughs> I can't wear big boy panties? Well, that's, if you want to do that, you can do that, I mean, too. Maybe I should. <laughs> and we'll uh, it, it is, mean, It's, it's going to be a massive game. Uh, last little bit here of business. I've got a couple of things. Any additions, corrections, or retractions for you, Tommy? I got nothing. It was a pretty perfect show for me. Well, I think that there are a couple of things we do need to mention. It's official. Sixth Man Strategies announcing a yeah. deal. They are signing all 18 KU men's basketball players to a deal to represent them in their name and likeness strategies, focusing on social media, player appearances, memorabilia, merchandise, and endorsements. Local Beatty brothers, Matt and Ryan, both former KU baseball players, are partnering the program. Um, so that's coming up for all these guys as we move into this new era of self-marketization of college athletes and obviously KU men's basketball in this part of the country maybe the biggest product that you can have outside of the Chiefs. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that if you were to pick a couple of guys that both love KU – yeah. Uh, have been instrumental with KU and yeah. are incredibly successful business people uh, to connect the dots for these student athletes. I can think of new, uh, no two better people than Matt brothers. and Ryan Beatty to do this uh, and to team up. Um, and, and you know what? I think there were people that I actually saw on social media that were like, this is ridiculous. This is not needed, whatever. Every major... Every major university is doing this in some way, shape, or form. Not officially affiliated with the university, obviously, but there is an NIL group at every major university that is working on getting these deals set up yeah. basically as agents, for lack of a better term, for these student-athletes now that they can do so. It's happening um, in Wichita State. Absolutely it They've is. They've already got softball players in a queso commercial. So what are yep. you talking This is KU. No disrespect to the softball lady. They should be eating queso at Carlos O'Kelly's, okay? Yep. And I'll give them a shout-out. This is KU men's basketball. And if you know what? these guys are getting NILs, what the hell are we talking about? Right. And you know what? For the Beatty brothers... Uh, Godspeed. God bless them. They saw an opportunity. We both like the Beatty brothers. We have sure. both worked professionally with the Beatty brothers. Sure. Have professional relationships. So full I consider the Beatty brothers my friends. So, uh, you know, full, full disclosure on that. But they saw an opportunity. 
Well, they, that's neither <laughs> here nor fault. there. Uh, he has bought <laughs> us lunch like so many times in a yeah. for that. Um, but, uh, but, but they saw an opportunity and uh, yeah. a, a needed opportunity and needed angle and they're taking advantage of it. Yeah. So uh, uh, more power to them. Yeah, the people who think it's bad, what, you know, whatever. Uh, I've actually got two more additions, Tommy. Wow. Uh, we've got supposedly maybe in time for next week's show. The due date is the 11th. We may have it. An update on KU men's basketball and possible infractions from the independent accountability mm. resolutions process due to be published a week from yesterday as you're watching the show on Tuesday. KU facing, of course, allegations of five level one infractions, a charge of head coach responsibility, and a lack of institutional control. It was accepted by the A uh, the IARP on July of uh, July 1st, 2020. And of course, it seemed to be baking in this process for about like five years now. None of the cases on this track, Tommy, have reached a resolution. Memphis and NC State were first, LSU, Arizona, Louisville behind. It would be great to at least get some sort of like beginning to the conclusion. I don't get the sense that it's going to be completely concluded next week, but it would be great to finally find out what's going to happen. Yeah, I agree. And I think that especially now that NIL is a real thing and the fact that a lot of these violations are related, you know, to improper benefits that really that is no such thing anymore. I can't imagine that the the ramifications are going to be large uh, for Kansas, you but, think. you know, you never know. So we'll, we'll find out what happens there. It's the NCAA. You never know about them. Uh, also, uh, Dion Manili has stepped down as the head football coach at Friends University. Really? Uh, really, really tough start to the year for the Falcons. They are 0-4. Now, they've played some pretty tough competition, but they have been nowhere close. Blasted 65-7 by Kansas Wesleyan to open up the year. Number 12 Threshers came down and dominated 59-3. Played pretty tough against Tabor, but then the University of St. Mary's up in Leavenworth. The Spires leveled the Falcons 55-7. So that is it for Dion Manili. Coming up next for the Falcons, it's McPherson College for homecoming against the Bullpups, or the Bulldogs, I should say. I'm surprised that he stepped down in the middle of the season. You typically don't see that a lot. At the KCAC level, typically they'll finish out the season and, you know, call it quits after that. 15 all KCAC performers he coached last year, two and six, uh, you know, thought that maybe he was going to get things going the right direction when three and seven in 2019. It will be his uh, coordinator, defensive coordinator, Matt Byers, is going to serve as the interim head coach through the end of the season. So that's the latest and greatest from Wichita hey, Sports. That's all the ACs and R's that I can find fit to bring to the table today. Tom. Yeah, I'm going to date myself a little bit. And I knew Dion Manili when he was the defensive coordinator at Southwestern College when I was a student. Wow. Uh, so that takes you back quite a while. Well, He's you're uh, taking him back, too. That's true. He's been I'm around sure, for quite a while. I'm sure he appreciates that now that he doesn't have a job. You've kicking him down in the dirt like that. <laughs> so that is our show. Episode 80 is in the books. Uh, no KU football to talk about next week. Thank goodness they're on a bye. Yeah. But we've got plenty more of the Chiefs and the Wildcats to discuss next week. And maybe we will have some answers about KU basketball and that process as the Jayhawks face those level one allegations. Again, like, share, and subscribe the video. If you like the audio, set up the notifications on your favorite device, Spotify, Google. It's very easy. Like, share, and subscribe on YouTube or Facebook. Really appreciate all the support with the social media. It helps us out a ton. And for our dear, beloved audio listeners, if you'd like to get in touch with us on Twitter, you can find us at CogPod on Twitter. Tommy, where can they find you tweeting on Twitter? 
Yeah, you can follow me anytime on Twitter at Tweets from Tommy. And of course, I am at DE Crip. So that is the show for this week, and we'll see you back here for next week in episode 81 of The Keeper of the Games. Take care, guys. You've been listening to Keeper of the Games. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and listen on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and more. Visit our website at cogsports.com. Find the podcast and videos on Facebook and YouTube at Keeper of the Games. And follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at cogpod. That's K-O-G pod.